Everybody wants to play a bigger part. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody's wondering what we are at heart. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody wants to play a bigger part. Why are you waiting for tomorrow to start? This is day one. Okay, it's the day one leadership podcast. And I sit today across the table from the founder, CEO, and lead designer, the triple title. Founder, CEO, and lead designer at 21 Toys, which is a socially motivated toy company that has been featured in Time Magazine as shaping classrooms of the future. She is one of only 28 worldwide recipients of the Ariane de Rothschild Fellowship and the winner of a literal arm's length list of awards and competitions, including, and this is just a sample of the many, many awards and competitions she has won, or her team has won, the Multiplicity Pitch Competition, the Imagination Catalyst Pitch Competition, the Emerging Entrepreneurs Award, the Youth Social Innovation Fund, the Agent of Change Program, and the CEO Radical Generosity Fund. I'm thrilled to welcome creator of things that make people smarter, Alana <laughs> Benary. Alana, welcome to the Day One Leadership Podcast. Thank you for having me. Alana, leadership is usually treated by people as something incredibly serious. You have decided that you want to change the world by making people play. Why? <laughs> um, I think I believe and I've, I've seen uh, that toys and play um, put people in a state of both um, huge radical creativity, vulnerability, and uh, connection. So I think forcing people to play and maybe get out of their comfort zone by getting comfortable in another weird way uh, is is where I really like to see, to, to put people in, because I, I really believe that, that that can cause some serious change. So you've been designing and creating for a long time, mm -hmm. but talk about currently your passion project, 21 Toys. What is 21 Toys and where did it come from? Great, um, so my background's industrial design. So I uh, study industrial design, so for those of you that don't know, that's product design. So I like to say it's like engineering and art. Uh, the Empathy Toy is actually the first uh, toy that we've uh, launched at 21 Toys. And so the Empathy Toy is actually my thesis project in university. I originally designed it for the visually impaired community. Um, so for uh, visually impaired students to play with their sighted classmates. Um, but a lot of the testing was done in my studio. And I discovered very quickly that the toy actually had a lot more... Um, a lot more value outside of just the visually impaired community, but also outside of just students. A lot of my testing is done on sighted adults. So I decided to start 21 Toys just about four years ago. Um, and the purpose of 21 Toys uh, is uh, to say, you know, toys are the new textbooks. So uh, there are things that we aren't necessarily valuing or teaching in our schools and uh, similarly in our workplace. So empathy is kind of the first in a series of skills that we're teaching with toys. So talk about the empathy toy. Like we're on a podcast, so I, I wish people could see it. We'll, we'll <laughs> yeah. include some photographs. I am so I'm currently talking with my hands. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she is. And, and But if you could sort of explain in a visual, like mm -hmm. so people can sit. When you said the empathy toy, what are you talking about? Right. So uh, the easiest way to explain it uh, in the world where you are only hearing my voice uh, is that it's an abstract 3D puzzle. So if you and I were playing, you would get a set of um, these five abstract wooden pieces. I would have another identical set. They're identical in every way except for color. Each piece has a different material, texture, and shape, and they connect in hundreds of ways. So if you and I were playing, you would get, let's say, a pattern created for you. You then have to describe that pattern to me so that I could recreate it. The challenge is that we're both blindfolded. 
And so because we're both blindfolded, uh, the game can go anywhere from five to 15 minutes. In that time, we're gaining huge insights into how we deal with patience, frustration, but most importantly, how do we creatively communicate with each other? And the entire time this is happening, the observers, which is the third player, they are watching everything go down, but they can't say anything. So all that leads into a really rich debrief that we're in about a thousand schools now and a hundred offices. They will adapt and change the game in various ways so that all of that can lead into a, a really rich debrief discussion to compare what happened in the game to a real life scenario. So why empathy? This is the first one that you've, you've sort mm-hmm. of come up with and you said it was your thesis in yeah. university. Why did you pick empathy or did you pick empathy or did you well, come up I, with Well, I'd like to say empathy chose me, but uh, <laughs> um, I, I, so okay, uh, the thing that's really interesting and it gets really meta is that the design process starts with empathy. So I actually designed the empathy toy. It, it got designed because of empathy. So my brief was actually, we work um, in partnership with the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. Um, and this was at Carleton University. So the brief was designed and navigational aid for the visually impaired. So my joke is they all thought that I was going to make a Blackberry with really big buttons. But the thing is that the our thesis project lasts eight months. Um, so as a group, we do research and then we do our own projects. So as a group, um, we're like, okay, well, let's learn about visual impairment. So all of that is empathic profiling, empathic research. So I like to say I maybe spent an hour reading a book on visual impairment. And I was like, why am I reading a book? I should probably talk to people who are living with this. And not just the people who are living with that, but their friends and their family. And that's how I very quickly discovered that there was a huge social gap between uh, the visually impaired community and the sighted community. So um, there was one girl who was eight years old who we shadowed um, for a day. And she missed 30% of class time. She had an adult with her all day. And um, she essentially had to do something called orientation mobility training, which is navigational training. The foundations of it are, where am I? Where am I going? How do I get there? And then I just thought, you know, if I created a game, and I didn't know it would be a toy at the time, that not only let her practice navigational skills, but that she could actually connect and hopefully bond and play with the other sighted students in her class, that would be so much more powerful than a walking stick that shouted directions to the subway station. Because that... Like that, it's a very, very different skill set. And so often we kind of rely on technology to save us, whereas human connection and communication, that is, if, if, if they have a device and the battery dies or something, they're lost. But if they can just turn to the person next to them and say, hey, I need some help, that's, that's huge. And if the person they asked for help has had experience with a visually impaired or has empathy towards them or, or an experience, a shared experience, uh, that's where you can see real change happening. So that's where I got really excited about the role of, of empathy and as it relates to design, really. And now this company, it's helping people train such a difficult word, you know, like train for Because I always yeah. think when you hear train, it's like you're putting a milk bone on a dog's nose. <laughs> for me, it's like explore. You're helping people explore empathy. Explore, understand. It's ideally it's an empathy education, mm-hmm. really. Why is empathy worth learning? Because you're basically going out and saying to businesses and edu- and schools, mm-hmm. you should spend money to invest in <laughs> this because it will help your people mm-hmm. better explore or educate themselves about this concept of empathy. Mm-hmm. But someone's going to say, well, why on earth do I give a care? Right. Uh, yeah. And, and honestly, starting it, I understood the value of it. But I also, I didn't necessarily have all the language for it. And also, I was skeptical. I was like, well, okay, I don't know if a school is going to get this, especially like, or an organization. Um, I just like to joke when people hear empathy toy, they just assume it's like a stuffed doll in like a Kleenex box. Um, but 
a lot of this stuff that we've been doing for the last four years and really this last year has been pretty amazing and kind of validating a lot of the work that we've been doing, but empathy is not just a nice to have, it's actually necessary. So when we talk about the word, the, the name of the company is 21 Toys, 21st century skills. I mean, we all use the words innovation, creativity, collaboration, complex problem solving. Those are like the key 21st century skills, but you can't teach those with a textbook. You need to teach those with uh, shared experience. And essentially a lot of that comes down to social and emotional skills. Um, companies now like Slack, LinkedIn, um, and Google talk about social and emotional skills being essentially the skills they hire for. And um, not to throw too many stats out there, but I mean, I think it was Psychology Today just this year came out with an article that um, the higher students' GPAs are, that's actually like, the higher their uh, grade point average or the better they are, it's actually inversely related to how good they are, like traits like necessary for innovation. And when we talk about the importance of social and emotional skills in the realm of that, it's about connection, it's about understanding, it's about being able to work with others. and. Now we're finding articles from, yeah, the, the founder of Slack, who is the co-founder of Flickr, um, Stuart Butterfield, said empathy is the key skill that they hire for, and it's the key skill that most people should hire for. Um, the Harvard Business Review has come out with a number of articles on empathy, especially this year. Uh, one in particular on a study that um, the woman from, um, uh, I want to say uh, Lady Geek, but uh, her name is, is Bethany looking at a study where companies that ranked highest on empathy, and that meant they're invested in empathy, they actually found a 50% increase like in, in, their, in their earnings. And they're finding, I don't know, something like companies now are investing 20% more in empathy training. So the joke is, like, we all know empathy is important, but now that we can prove that like empathy equals dollar signs, the companies are investing in it, in, in the training of it. And I think, yeah, anecdotally, having better teammates, people that communicate, understand each other, is important, but like having a happy workplace and people who are invested in other people's happiness is is so important. And so you're saying not only as a business person, if your organization invests in empathy, it's going to result in bigger dollars. As a human being, it's <laughs> going to make you more effective at working with other people. It's going to it's, make it's you, a nice side effect of also that yeah, yeah. On, on a practical level. Yeah. It makes you more employable it, it, and mm -hmm. it makes you better at the jobs that you do. And crazy thing that we're finding now is that we actually I just had a meeting with my team where we found out that people are actually using the toys in job interviews where they are now getting candidates and we actually started doing that because we just we're growing as well and we've started hiring um building the team um getting them to actually play a five to 15 minute game like this I immediately go okay, I can't work with this person. <laughs> they can't take direction from me. Um, we've had other companies that had people, the interview, the people that were interviewing the candidates, it actually highlighted that maybe they weren't so great at actually interviews, like interviewing other people. Really? It's so fascinating. <laughs> but I, I think like we all, everyone knows that these traits are important. It's important to be kind and nice and thoughtful and all those things. But it's really, it's, we like to say it's going from a soft skill to a hard skill. It's really, it's not just a nice to have, it's necessary. Let's stop for a second because a lot of my work is saying we throw words around mm -hmm. and then we start talking about what they mean and how important they are and we never take a break and say, wait a second, what exactly are we looking at? So you've got a company, you want to invest in empathy, you want to become a more empathetic person. So let me ask you the core question. Mm -hmm. Highly intelligent person walks up to you and says, I'm sorry, English is not my first language. This word, this empathy, could you just explain what it means in the simplest English terms possible? So let's start there. Or we didn't even start there because this is how easy it gets mm -hmm. to skip over it. So let's pause for a second and go back and say, 
you are the creator or you work with a team that has created. You're now making a company that talks about the empathy toy. Mm-hmm. What does empathy mean? How would you define that word? So there's two people that we like to go to who are like empathy experts. So Brene Brown is one of them. And she has this amazing video on the difference between empathy and sympathy, where sympathy is about looking at a situation or a person with pity, mm-hmm. as opposed to with empathy, it's about looking at it for through curiosity and, and understanding. Um, Roman Kachernik, uh, who is actually a co-founder of the School of Life, uh, he's an empathy expert um, and pretty, pretty incredible. I like to use his quote with all, I might misquote a little bit, but what I say is it's empathy is really about, um, you know, walking a mile in someone else's shoes, putting yourself in their, in their position in the imaginative act of putting yourself in someone else's shoes and then taking that information to guide your actions. And I think that is how we look at it in the most important part where it's about imagination just as it is about, you know, emotions. Um, but all of that should influence your actions. So if, if you were going to finish this sentence, mm-hmm. Embrace or a commit uh, empathy as a value means making a commitment to what? Empathy means making a commitment. So okay, this is gonna be a run-on sentence. It's okay. <laughs> um, I, I mean, when when we look at empathy, for me in my life, we say this all like, how do I empathy toy this? It's not just about looking at a situation being like, how can I be more understanding? It's what assumptions am I making about this situation that are influencing my perspective? Because I have my background and my, you know, my share, my experiences that are going to influence the way that I answer this question or that I approach this project. The person I'm working with is coming with a completely, possibly a completely different background. And so what assumptions am I making about where that person's at, um, in this conversation or in this project? It's interesting. I, I remember the first time I ever worked with you watching the empathy toy. Mm-hmm. It, it's weird because you say walking a mile in someone else's shoes. And I don't know if you remember this. We did it. I might've told the I story. Actually, I do. Yeah. I, I was, I was going to mention that anecdote, but yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll let you it tell was, it. It was so funny because we had, uh, it was, uh, the first time I ever met you was very, very fast. Um, I, we ended up doing a workshop together with Engineers Without Borders. Engineers Without Borders, yeah. And it was, uh, we had African delegates and we were telling them like walking a mile in someone's shoes and he was very confused and he said, well, why don't you just put on their whole wardrobe? Yeah, Is why don't you wear all their clothes? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking about that. Yeah, that was uh, that was amazing. And that was such a like meta version of like, oh, of course, why would I assume that everyone in the room would understand that? That like, would would know that saying. An English kind of like an English saying, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, there because we lacked empathy in that moment to be like, oh, it's walking a mile in someone's shoes. And I thought I realized just by using that English turn of phrase cuz mm-hmm. it's a complicated language. Yeah. We had actually failed to embrace <laughs> it. I think I've told the story on the podcast before. <laughs> so it, it's it's interesting that we saw how easy it is to slip out of the things that even are most important to us. Mm-hmm. So you've done this game, all right, mm-hmm. this toy, you played it, and I have as well. And it's, it's a real eye-opening experience, even down to realize that people start using terminology that once you take your sight away, you, f- you don't realize how little information you give people when you assume you do, like, well, turn it up. And someone's realized, well, which way is up? Mm-hmm. So that's, a, it was a really enlightening thing. You've done, I'm guessing, hundreds of these workshops. Like a Brazilian, at least. All, yeah. all over the world. What has surprised you when you started doing these? So when you started, I'm sure you had certain expectations going in saying, we're going to play this toy. Mm-hmm. People are going to realize certain things. 
So let's skip over the stuff that you expected that happened Mm -hmm. and say, once you started going out and putting people through the process of using an empathy toy where they had to learn to communicate differently and understand each other differently, what started happening that you didn't necessarily expect to happen? Well, I mean, I would say the first ever time I tested it, I was really surprised that it was fun and also really relieved because it's such a serious thing. And then I tested it on a kindergarten class and it was hilarious. And it, it achieved this weird level of their, they really were trying to understand each other and kind of create this common language. Um, nowadays I'm honestly, every single time somebody plays it, there is a new, there's a new insight cause it's a new person or a new dynamic of two people playing it. Um, I, get so surprised I've had friends who had who were having like they're in a relationship they're having issues with their partner and somehow their conclusion they're like we should really play that toy and they they did and it's so bizarre to me but I do think I do think it's a really interesting thing that happens when you put a blindfold on where some people might get a bit anxious but more often than not I very surprisingly hear that it calms people and they really get to focus on this one task this one task of describing what they're seeing with their hands. And my surprise is usually that when people play it and they're getting really frustrated, I'm like, they're going to, they're going to be so mad at me. Like I had my aunts play it and I'm like, they're going to kill me. <laughs> they took the blindfolds off and they're like, Oh, that was really fun. And then when we debrief, I think the most interesting insight is that people self analyze. They talk about what they did wrong or they talk about what they didn't understand. Or they're like, I was really surprised that I got so frustrated with you. Or I'm really surprised that, um, I, this actually wasn't like, I thought this wasn't going to be no problem. And it was incredibly challenging to come at a similar word that, that you would, that you had said. So, but yeah, I, I mean, my favorite anecdote is still the first uh, girl to play it. Who's Emily, who's the girl who was visually impaired when she picked up one of the pieces and described it as a flower piece. And I was just like, how did you get to flower? Cause it's just this like abstract kind of shape. And her friend just went, well, and they're both blindfolded. And she goes, well, I, I, I guess it's a flower. Sure. And then just went along with it. And I was like, well, we could really just call it whatever we want. But the fact that she called it a flower is just really, really interesting. It's one of the most interesting things about playing with this toy is when people start picking things up, they have to describe to other people, okay, we'll take this piece and connect it to this piece. I've never used it and had people use the same terminology for the pieces. I'm like, well, that's clearly an arrow and that's clearly a star. Right. When I looked at the person, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, there's a star piece and an arrow piece or there's some, and then people never call them that they always change it. And then as soon as the first person does, the entire group simply adopts it. Mm-hmm. And I found that fascinating is every group gives it a different hmm. name. And I realized how completely arbitrary mm-hmm. many of our commonly held beliefs are because someone said it and everyone else said, yeah, okay, well, I'll roll with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the, one of the really interesting insights is, uh, so we actually just did a workshop. We've done actually a lot of workshops with like United Way and the FedEx sales team we, we've done now with a lot of banks and we're actually um, we just recently did one with the BMO bank and what we tend to do in our workshops is halfway through the workshop we'll actually set up the game where we'll have let's say uh, a group of five people playing at once so there's one guide that person gets a built pattern they're describing that pattern to four blindfolded builders so four people are building the same shape at the same time with one guide who's also blindfolded. We'll play it a second time where that guide is then sighted. And so we would say, well, what do you think is maybe going to be easier? What are, what if, um, that, that scenario. And it's always surprising to me that no matter who is playing from a bank to a high school to anyone else, it's always 50, 50. We say who preferred having the sighted guide 
and who perverted having the, the blindfolded guide. And so often we see that the sighted guide halfway through gets so frustrated because they thought, well, I can see, obviously it's going to be easier. They close their eyes so they can give better directions to the other group. But when we have the debrief, it, we've had a room of 70 people and it literally looked like half the room raised their hands for, we really preferred sighted and half the room was for blindfolded. And I think it's not, it's contextual. I think there isn't necessarily like sighted leadership or, or blindfolded leadership is based on the context. You don't necessarily want blindfolded leadership when the house is burning down. You know, you want one person that can see and just can like delegate. But a lot of the time it's, it's a lot better to have a, a blindfolded leader. And, and it's, you just, it's odd that you described that scenario because that's been a very interesting experience for me because we found the same thing. You say you've got four people and everyone's blindfolded it seems more difficult. And we say, okay, well, let the person in charge take off their blindfold so they can see what everyone else is doing and they can correct their mistakes. What I often find is that the individual who also assumes, oh, I want to be the leader, I want to see, I have this skill, this insight, this knowledge that everyone else on the team doesn't have now, I can see. Mm-hmm. They actually find it to be more pressure. Yeah. And I, they, they're like, look, I felt as if the success of the team was now entirely on my head. Well, when mm-hmm. we all were lacking sight, we shared that responsibility, which I found mm-hmm. to be a really interesting leadership insight. Absolutely. And even their language changes from like, yeah, this is hard. Or like, how are you doing? Because they don't know they need to check in. Um, whereas they can see everything. So they can just be like, okay, Joanne, left, a little left, a little to the right, a little, no, move that a little. And it's it's a lot more um, robotic. It's a lot less like emotional language. Let's go back a little bit to what experiences might have led you to wanting to do this as a career? Like you built a company based on the idea of, of building toys that help people mm-hmm. learn. I don't know how you feel about the term soft skills. I'm okay with it. Are you yeah. okay with yeah, Why are you okay with that? Let's pause before <laughs> I get to the next question because it always well, makes... I don't think soft is bad. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I, I mean, the word soft, I, I, I mean, so much of the mission of what, the reason I started 21 Toys um, was A, just because I knew no one else was going to make this empathy toy or understand it. So I was like, well, I guess I have to make it. Like, I have to make a business so I can make more of these these toys. But it's really about just saying, like, these skills are just as important. Like, we talk about STEAM instead of STEM. We talk about, like, math, physics, chemistry. Like, everyone understands the importance of those skills or those, those classes. Um, but when we talk about soft skills, I don't think it's about changing the word soft. I think it's about acknowledging that soft is just as valuable and, and positive. It's really interesting. I've always struggled when people say soft skills. But I guess the problem isn't that things are called soft. The problem is that we assume soft isn't as good as hard. Which is the same thing with people say, it's not an empty toy, it's a communication tool. And I go, oh, right, okay, so my purpose is to really elevate the value of communication tools. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not backing down on the word toys, because I also think toys is just as much devalued. I'm, I'm doubling down on, on the word toys as much as we are with, the, with terms like soft skills. You once gave a speech called, school is a poorly designed game. <laughs> why do you think, why do you say that? Um, okay. Well, I mean, I, I like to joke that a lot of the reasons why I started this, uh, this company that's, you know, questioning, maybe it started from questioning, you know, what we're teaching, uh, is cause I was a really good student. Like I grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and I'm very proud of that. But growing up, I needed to like get out of there. <laughs> and I found out very quickly that my only way out of, um, to really, 
to explore the world and, and study outside of Winnipeg was to get a full scholarship. Like we didn't have the means otherwise. So I worked really, really, really hard at school and I got a full scholarship and I got to Carleton and Ottawa and I very quickly realized being good at school had so little to do with being good at life. And it was very disappointing. Um, and I think that kind of put me on this path of going, well, what are we teaching and what am I spending full time from the age of six until at least, you know, 17, what am I learning? Like, what is it that I'm not just learning, but what am I learning actively in terms of my classes? But what lessons am I learning just from the leadership of the adults and the authority figures in my life? Now, is it a game if no one's having any fun? Because you say school's a poorly designed game. Right. Is school a game? Right. Okay. So it's for the game part, um, sorry, whenever we talk about high school, I go, I get, <laughs> like, getting flashbacks. Um, yeah, I think so much of the way that it's designed, um, anywhere from tests. So I like to, in the talk, I compared test scores to essentially currency. So A students are at kind of the top level and F students are at the bottom and like your marks are your currency. And it's a very clear, very like specific, you get good marks, you do well, you'll succeed, you'll have a great life. And like, not only is that not correct, but that's like a really bad game. Like that doesn't allow for any messiness. It doesn't allow for iteration. It doesn't allow for prototyping. It doesn't allow for um, the fact that you might be really good at math and art. And just cause, and that was my dilemma. Like I, uh, like art just seemed like a throwaway course. So you're just essentially, you're just telling up marks and okay, what will get me to the next level? And it's just, it's not, yeah, I, I don't think it's a well design game for like so many reasons uh, apart from the fact that it's just really disconnected from what we actually should be teaching and instilling um it's just not it's fun iteration and messiness i like yeah. that there's no room for iteration and messiness which is possibly another way you can talk about iteration and messiness is failure Absolutely. which is the next the next <laughs> thing because it's funny you call 21 toys and we've only talked about my, one. my joke is that the two is silent at the moment we're a one toy company but uh yes we are called 21 toys. <laughs> is, is it because 21st century? It's for 21st century. A lot of people think it's because we'll have 21 toys. So I, I, I mean, I know what the next nine are going to be. Um, but I only, I, I, I will, I publicly speak about the next one, which okay. is, which is the failure the toy. The failure toy. Yeah. So we went empathy toy and mm -hmm. the next thing up is failure toy. It's funny because you say school doesn't allow for messiness and iteration. And I think messiness and iteration is failure. Mm -hmm. and, and it's another way of looking at yeah. it or practice. I've, a lot of ways to different to spin the concept of failure. Well, like you the, don't fail, you practice. Well, exactly. So what, what I've been saying a lot uh, since we started working on it is that in music and sports, failure is called practice. But in our education, it doesn't have another word. It's just failure. It's just a stigmatized thing that we're supposed to avoid at all costs. Um, it's incredibly success focused in terms of the way that we look at school. It's about getting 10 out of 10. Two out of 10 is bad. Um, and I think what we need to be doing right now is teach, uh, practicing, uh, failure education instead of failure abstinence, which is what we're doing right now. Then failure abstinence. Yeah. So I've, I've, we've, I've written about it a, a bit and I haven't, um, we going into more detail in it as we launch the toy, but it's the idea is that because we're not teaching it, no one's talking about it. So we're pretending like it's not happening, but it's happening and it's a totally normal part of your growth and your development and the way that you, you know, grow. And because we're not teaching it, 
then some people are doing fine, but some people are suffering in silence. And the fear is that if we start teaching failure, everyone's going to start failing all over the place and having unprotected failure. But you know, what we're, what I'm really looking at is like, let's stop talking about failure abstinence and let's talk about what failure looks like. It's normal. It's going to happen to all of us at some point. So let's talk about better ways of failing. Let's talk about how we deal with failure and we deal with failure, especially in the context of other people and group work and all of those things so that we can have like little mini failure opportunities so we can get, get better at it. Cause yeah, I don't think anyone's getting out of here without failing at some point. Cause people are going to fail anyway. So we might yeah. as well prepare them to mm-hmm. have safe. I love that. I've never <laughs> thought of that analogy. It's just like, look, kids are going to fail anyway, no matter what we say. So we should at least prepare them to yeah. do it safely and then it won't cause them. That's a re- I've never thought of that. So Thanks. the failure toy. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us a little bit as I know it's like, but like, mm-hmm. I don't, it's a secret still, kind of. Kind of, yeah. But what are you hoping to accomplish with it? Let's go there. You don't right. have to tell us details. But. Well, what I'm really, I'm so excited. I cannot wait. I love empathy. We talk about empathy a lot, but I'm I'm excited to, to talk about failure because much like the empathy toy, and so they're all kind of going to be cousins to each other. So the failure toy will be a cousin to the empathy toy. So. At which point the analogy we were just using falls apart. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no, no. So, uh, in the way that when I mean cousins, I mean they're it's going to be abstract, physical, tangible pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, so you play with them. It like- will be played. It will be collaborative. So there'll be it's it's the idea of it is to explore what failure looks like in a smaller scale in the um, in a group essentially. So there's both uh, an encouraging of risk taking, getting out of your comfort zone prototyping and iterating to get to quote unquote the goal of the toy the entire time that is happening um there's a certain level of assessment and they are seeing the other players judging their decisions while they are being played we're still playing around with how intense or not intense that is um but what i'm so excited is about a part of the failure toy um a really key part of it is that there's going to be limits to how and when you can communicate and what i'm hoping is that there will be a certain tokens that extend beyond the game. So there's a token in the game that we're still prototyping how and when it comes into play, but it allows you or it hopes that you talk about what went wrong. And what I'm so excited about is that this this chip or this token can then leave that three hour workshop, 90 minute or whatever, and it can enter the, you know, the office of, of um, the person in charge of that organization who, when someone sits down and talks about how a project's going, they give them that token. They go, this is me telling you we can talk about what went wrong. Like, let's make sure that we design for failure when we enter this project or when we enter um, this next new th- new phase where we don't know what's going to happen. We need to design for feedback. We need to design for, th- cr- we, we need to design to create that space that we are expecting that something will go wrong. The surprise for me should be that nothing went wrong. That's weird. What I should be expecting is that every week something went wrong and let's talk about it. It's interesting because this is toys. That's mm-hmm. what you're building. You can't just talk about these ideas. You actually have to do yeah. it. You play with them. And you have you buy into this in your company here as well because if you come into the office of 21 Toys, there is a giant swing <laughs> in the middle like an actual big ass swing which we installed and then asked permission for. <laughs> Failure, iterate, try it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's it's got a Dr. Seuss quote, yeah. uh, like carved into it. Fun is good. We did that. Yeah. yeah. So let's say there are business owners, CEOs, managers listening to this podcast. How are some ways they can better infuse play into their workplaces? 
That's a great question. So I think play doesn't have to mean having, you know, Legos on the table. Um, but I think, and we try to do this, anything from, uh, we try every other Friday to do um, a games, uh, not not even night, but about four o'clock. Everybody packs up and then we play a board game or we play um, other kind of, someone will bring that in. It's really important. I mean, for us, obviously, part of that is research. <laughs> the other part is just, it's a great way to just unwind and, you know, see how everyone's doing, checking in. Um, obviously, the office swing is something I never stop talking about. It's amazing, not only because it's there, but because throughout the day, we're in a co-working space. Um, various people just walk into our office. Like, it's an open concept office, but you're definitely entering t- into our zone um, with headphones on, they may or may not acknowledge us and just sit on the swing and they're just taking a swing break. I think that, I think it, obviously my background is design, so I'm, that's my bias, but designing a space that allows for play is so important. Anything from like really beautiful big tables that encourage people to sit together to whiteboards everywhere to knowing where the kitchen and where the coffee machine is placed. Um, I think a well-designed kitchen is really, really important for collaboration and innovation because you're working really hard and you're focusing on a problem. It's when you take a break and get a coffee and stand next to somebody else from another department who suddenly is like, Hey, how's it going? Oh, what are you working on? Oh, I'm really struggling with this. And then suddenly you get this insight and every, like that's that moment of breaking from flow. And when you're still kind of, you're coming down from that really intense thinking, that's where a lot of the breakthroughs happen. And so I think if you design play into that, anything from, yeah, drinking coffee or, um, you know, other eating or, or, or games or something where you catch someone at that moment and you design for it. I think that can make huge, huge differences. And as an aside, Mm -hmm. just for anyone out there who's stressed out, I'm 39 years old and about a week ago, two weeks, I guess, little, not having a great go of it. It's walking home with a friend and she's like, let's go swing on those swings. (laughs) And I honest to God, don't remember the last time I was on a swing and I went and did it. And if you're stressed out the next time you see swings or if you've got kids and you take them to get on the swings, I, this sounds so goofy, <laughs> but it's super, I call it my mood swing. Like we've had samples coming in and I'm like, I hope these are good. Cause we've already paid for them. And this is like, and I, I had that box on my desk for maybe two hours and I was like, I'm going to take a swing. And so I just like swung a bit and I was like, okay, everything's fine. <laughs> and I opened up that sample. It's, it's a game changer. <laughs> and I know it sounds weird folks, especially cause we might have VPs and CEOs and whatever listening to this. <laughs> the next time you see a swing, do it. It really genuinely was like a great reset. And I would have laughed at that. You know, it's one of those things where I'm like, Oh sure. Say it in a speech, but who does it? It really is something. I'll say that. So it's the day one podcast and we're going to get into your back to day one, but let's go even a little, I always say the first day of high school is day one, (laughs) just so people can get a common concept, but let's for you go a little earlier before we get to that. Your mom rewrote children's (laughs) books because I think this really informs a lot of of (laughs) the person I know you to be. Your mom actually rewrote children's books for you growing up. Tell us about that and tell oh, us why. Oh, how much time do we... Okay, so first of all, I, I would like to say anyone that's known me since... Uh, well, really, anyone who's met me in my life, I talk about both my parents a lot. They are the goofiest, strangest <laughs> people. Um, my my mom... I mean, my dad is such 
a goofball. He calls me every week telling me these new amazing inventions um, and these ideas that he has. And he is, I could talk about him endlessly, but he, yeah, he has a like Marvin the Martian wallet. Like, I don't know how more. Anyway, my mom um, is also just equally, but in such a different direction. She's so she's um, my sister and I, it's my sister and I. So we both grew up with um, a mother who's very, very strong willed feminist crazy crazy smart she studied chemistry at Oxford um I don't think we owned a mug in our house that she didn't win from a radio program CBC radio actually asked her to stop calling they said it was unfair (laughs) to the listeners so she went down the street there's a cafe that gives free coffees if you answer a trivia question um this was before yeah you would be using a smartphone for that but she when we were growing up she really went out of her way to make sure that we um had kids books and anything that we consumed um was as gender neutral as possible so she um yeah crossed out like she'd read he or she she would change mankind to humankind um we had a scrapbook of female heroes from the newspaper um we weren't allowed barbies but i did sometimes get some for my birthday and i remember once um i was playing with one of the barbie dolls and her leg broke and I told my mom and she was like, well, that's what happens when you wear stupid shoes. <laughs> and that was her, her response to it. So I, we, we grew up with a really, really strong-willed mom who, who really went out of her way to make sure that we, we understood that the world was a lot, a lot more than just princesses. So I, I thought that was remarkable to, to, <laughs> to say, you know, this, it was like the three bears or something. I remember reading it was like. Yeah, uh, Goldie, yeah Gold, Goldilocks. Yeah, she rewrote it um, so that... Um, Goldilocks ended up like fixing or Mama Bear was fixing the the chair so Mama Bear was the the handy person and and Papa Bear was the one cooking meals I mean we watch Beauty and the Beast and my mom was like fine you can watch Beauty and the Beast the Disney movie but just so you know this is an abusive relationship and like this is this is not a good relationship like Belle should not be trying to change the beast like like she yeah she definitely intervened a lot And so this background from the from a very young age, mm-hmm. this this idea of being gender neutral, and you say they, they both your parents called themselves feminists. Yeah. And so you wrote in an article, an article I loved, it wasn't until I started a business just over three years ago that I realized what being a woman in the business world meant. Mm. What did you realize it meant? And I, I ask before I even begin that question, is it okay to ask that? Yeah, and I struggle with that because I I wear two hats where I know that I want to be able to speak on what it's like being a woman and starting a business, but I always want to make sure that when I talk, I'm not the token female entrepreneur. So it's a struggle. I don't know how to deal with that. So I, I'm very happy to talk to it because I do think it's important and it should be discussed, not just for the women who are listening, but just as much for you know it really anybody that's that's listening but um yeah I struggle with that especially when I'm on a panel and I'm the only woman like I was I was a keynote speaker uh this year at a conference and they're literally like the female bathroom was it was me and the moderator that was it like there was no lineup <laughs> at all um so it's it's tricky but what I would say and what I've written about this especially because of uh, so the the most recent award that we've won is uh the CEO Radical Generosity Award um it's a really I didn't understand it until I got into it how incredibly powerful and important it is so I'll give a, a slight explanation of that and then I'll, I'll get back to that so um, CEO was started by Vicky Saunders um this incredible uh, female entrepreneur and she's had years and years and years and years starting multiple businesses and she essentially has said look there is a a fundamental issue 
with how we support and how we fund female entrepreneurs. And she created the CEO Radical Generosity Fund as the first kind of, um, like the first in many different steps that are being taken to say, look, standing up on a stage and talking about this, like getting a you know, $20 million valuation on an app that hasn't really gone out there yet. And the, the way that it is, um, that you are asking for money, the people you're asking from, most of the venture capitalists and investors are, you know, white males. Um, there's going to be a certain bias that is going to really make it hard for, for women. And so the radical generosity fund, um, in just in its first year, the ideas they got, they were aiming for a thousand and they got 500 women to each, um, loan but really it's a donation a thousand dollars to create a pool a loan so they in their first year they got a five hundred thousand dollar loan and that was given to five female-run businesses so we happen to be one of them the interesting part of it which was both terrifying and I wrote about it uh which was pretty um it was was a really incredible experience but of that five hundred thousand we the five of us had to negotiate how it was broken down and so in, there is a scenario where four women walk away with $1 <laughs> and one person walks away with the rest. Um, but what was so incredible, and I, I like to say like collaboration is the new competition, I think it was modeled there because we didn't go in kicking and fighting. We, we went off, we were strangers on Friday and by Sunday we were negotiating and it was done through the idea that it wasn't a success if we didn't all leave that room getting what we needed to grow our businesses. So that was that was a bit that was not a short description, but it was anyway. It was a really really incredible experience, and to speak towards what it's like to be a female entrepreneur, I'd say there's so many things that I'm still trying to wrap my head around how to describe it. But on a very simple level, when I first was starting my business, and I've heard this a lot from women, it was really hard to be taken seriously in the sense that I would ask someone like, "Hey, can I go for coffee? I'd like to talk to you about like patent laws." And then I'd show up and I'm like, oh, this is a date. And that happened a lot. And I talked to other female entrepreneurs who they, the idea that you want to talk to people and get advice about your business sometimes ends up becoming an opportunity to, you know, for something else. So that was really hard to navigate. In, in the eyes of the person you asked, it becomes an opportunity for something else. And well, I'm not, I mean, I... And not as much now because I'm obviously I'm running a business, so it, it doesn't really happen as often. But at the beginning, when it was just me, like one prototype, a TEDx talk, and a website, I'd be like, "Hey, can I like either I would reach out to them and say, "Hey, can I talk to you?" And that maybe, but even like I would just exist, and then I would say, "Oh, I'd love to talk to you about your business. Like we should go go for coffee sometime," and that you know could be really veiled. And it was that was really hard to navigate. Um, probably the weirdest experience I had was in an accelerator um, before I started. Uh, 21 toys where one of the mentors just straight up 9am on Skype was like, do you have a boyfriend? And those kinds of things are really damaging and, and hurtful, not just because that's happening, but because the community and the ecosystem that's designed around that should n- make that person feel really uncomfortable taking, taking that kind of a step. But it, it was like, it, it wasn't na- it wasn't handled in the way that I, I wish that it was. And, and it's like, I think I can come off as really confident and strong. And so that's, I can brush that off and keep moving. But I think there are a lot of big things and there are all a lot of little things that slowly chip away at you that say like, you probably shouldn't be here. It's, it's interesting because um, now in my mind, I'm going over 
interactions when people reach out and thinking, does that pop into my head? Like, am I being, and, and so that's why I wanted to ask that, but it's also why I want to ask, cause as you say, I don't want to go in, you are a leader, you're an entrepreneur, you run a business, but you also represent a group that although growing, there are fewer, you know, like women entrepreneurs and, and like, so I want to talk about yeah. that, but I don't want to diminish it to be like the reason I'm talking to you is because you're a female entrepreneur. Yeah. I, I, I would just say like, again, in, with empathy, like it's context. So we'll, I'll go to a networking, like they'll be like, here's how you network. And then I'm just sitting here being like, okay, I'm the only woman in this room. All the tips you just gave me are going to get me in a lot of trouble. Like I can't take the same tips that that guy is taking for networking. And I would say the way that we can fund, the way that we can support female entrepreneurs I do think that gender plays a role in the way that we are perceived not just by men but by other women and and I think there's 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 a lot more to be I think learned and and researched and also just redesigned to allow for more than just one type of person going through this as an entrepreneur do you feel successful right now (laughs) um it took me about two years before I felt comfortable calling myself an entrepreneur um but yeah I mean it's when it things are really 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 tough it's three in the morning like that happened this week even like I'm working crazy hours it's you know it can be really really exciting but can also be just as daunting and scary and terrifying and you're like why am I doing this um yeah I mean we're in a thousand schools and a hundred offices in 43 countries and that's through word of mouth like my team is I have like currently three and a half elves Like it's a really small team and they're incredible and they're amazing. And I think what we've done as a group and what we've done through our communities and through the like Spin Master Innovation Fund was one of the awards that we won right off the bat. And the the support that we've had from Futurepreneur Canada and um, Spin Master has, has been phenomenal as well as with the Shia Radical Generosity Fund. So like I feel both successful and like insanely lucky, but I don't diminish the hard work that was done to make that luck. Before we start talking about day one in your life, I want to give you a hypothetical. So you are Professor Venery uh, <laughs> at, at Entrepreneur University, mm-hmm. and every entrepreneur in the world has to sit down and go through your intro class. On day one, what do you tell them right off the bat? What's the one lesson they need to walk <laughs> out of on day one? If you got a chance to sit, because there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast. The who are one like, thing? Or pick a one thing. Like, I, I don't I like mean, saying I the don't one. Wanna, um, so right off the bat, I mean, I would just say, and this might be counter to what I was saying, but like nobody knows anything. Like I just think so often I, people have good intentions. People have their experiences. I'm sure at some point, if not already, I've given some really bad advice. I think people know what they know. They know what they've experienced. But like I'm pretty sure, oh my goodness, um... I've paid a hundred dollars to a consultancy who's like, this will never be made out of wood. Like these toys will never be made out of wood. And I've, we ran our Kickstarter campaign and we had, you know, all the teachers that saw it were like, great, how do I get on board? And then every single business advisor we had was like, this, there's no way this is going to work. Like my own, my own aunt, who's a teacher whom I love and adore was just like, that's, this is really great, honey. There's no way this is going to be under a Christmas tree. And like the amount of toys that we've sold directly to parents and families and just like, it's a really fun <laughs> drinking game. Like we've actually like every single, almost every single thing. And, and I remember when we were even doing a Kickstarter campaign, I just thought, okay, is this going to work? Does this make sense? Is this an okay risk? And I talked to one, another entrepreneur that, um, 
also like wildly successful, really amazing. I was just like, did anyone ever tell you that this wouldn't work? And she was like, yeah, everybody. She's like, except for my dad. So I hired him. <laughs> and I was just like, that's uh, amazing. And so when I say like, nobody knows anything, I think what's important is to talk to a lot of people, but at the end of the day, you know, like, you know, if it's worth it to try it, um, and to allow yourself to prove, prove others wrong. Cause it's really easy when something's working to go, Oh yeah, of course that, that works. So how about day one? It's your first day of high school. You get to sit down across from that, I guess, 13-year-old version of Alana. Although, did you go to high school at like 11 uh, years of age or something? <laughs> like, No, no I, I, I was 13. I actually, um, it was a really big year because I, I grew up in the north end of Winnipeg. Um, and then I, I, at the age of 13, went into, yeah, junior high, high school. And it was a different school with very, very, very high expectations and double the workload. Really? Yeah, it was really intense. So you're you're sitting like we are right now, and uh, <laughs> and you get to to talk to that version of you. And besides, like what I've said, that most people have said is like, well, they tell them to not wear that whatever they're wearing. But what would you give? What are three things about the world that you've learned between that day and now that you would want to share with that version of Alana on day one? I think looking back, there are a few things that I want to offer in terms of support. But I actually. I do think that I accidentally did a few things right. Like I was not popular. I, uh, I came to Canada. I was six. So I I didn't have an accent by the time I was 13, but I definitely like everyone in my family is from somewhere else in the world. And so I've kind of got that immigrant kind of mentality that outsider feeling. And I definitely felt that, um, in high school. And I think I, I would just say like being weird is, is okay. And it's kind of great that you were weird and kind of did your own thing. Like I, I, I remember like the first week of high school, I like sussed it out and I was like, okay, cool. I am, I am not popular. <laughs> I was like, and I, I'd, I'd gone into high school. I knew one or two of the students who got to this new school and I was just like, oh, they're going to be my friends. And then I very quickly were like, oh, they're really cool and beautiful. And like, maybe this, uh, let's see. So I actually did an experiment. <laughs> Such a weird kid. I did experiments where we went for lunch three times. Then I was like, I'm going to just not go to lunch. And if they ask me, Hey, why weren't you at lunch? Then I'll know that they want me to continue being their friend. Cause I just literally just, just was like a very, like the pecking order. It just, I was not one of the cool kids. And I was like, if they ask me, then I'll know that they want to be my friend. But if they don't ask me, it's cool. Don't worry about it. I'll do my own thing. The last thing I want to be is that person who's in that friend group where they're all like, oh, can you believe that she's sitting with us? And so I skipped on lunch and they never, they didn't ask me why I wasn't at lunch. And I was like, cool, that's great. No problem. Like I'm, I'm good. Um, and I think a lot of that came with the fact that I was never a bully except for a two month period in grade six, right before I turned 13. And, um, it was a bullying scenario where like me and my best friend, actually, we were just mostly honing our like humor, like our joking ability. And we unfortunately took it out on one student. Um, and we had a teacher intervene very quickly after two months and we all sat in a circle and it was all the girls in the classroom and we talked about feelings and emotions and everybody kind of told their stories of, of bullying. And it wasn't until I started talking about well, sorry. No, it wasn't even that. I knew that I needed to apologize to that student. And I didn't know that she had heard any of the things that we had said. That was in my head, in my like grade, like 12 year old head. I was like, well, she's not hearing it. Who's it hurting? Um, and then she'd heard it. So I was like, okay, I should probably, I should apologize. So I sat down, I started apologizing to her. And as I apologized to her and it was describing like 
this is, I'm sorry for doing this. It probably made you feel like this. It really was my first like empathy experience where I just thought like, wow, that's really awful. And I think that experience, um, and I was bullied also much younger, but I was quite young when I was bullied. I took that experience. And then I remember through high school, I was really nice. Like I let, like we, like I wasn't popular, but I definitely ended up having a lot of friends of, we made a group of not popular (laughs) friends and we were awesome. And like, they're still my best friends today. And like just really amazing, wonderful people. But if we had people from the high school who otherwise were necessarily like outcasts or had certain delays or social issues that meant that they didn't really have any friends, um, I made it very clear in my friend group. I'm like, we don't say no to anybody who wants to have lunch with us. Cause like, who cares? Like they're going to sit next to us. It's so much worse for them to have to sit on their own. And like my friends, a lot of them are just kind of like, oh, that's really lame. (laughs) Um, But I really stuck to that. I, it was really important to me. So I, I would go back and be like, Hey, it's cool. Like keep doing that. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Well, just... I've had to do a lot of reflecting on it. Cause I was just like, well, where did this come from? <laughs> where did this come from? And it was like, Oh, I was a total jerk. And then I wasn't. And yeah, that was kind of, I think my experience. And it's uh, like you were experimenting and iterating early yeah. on. Oh, I'm just not going to go to lunch and see what happens. Mm. Like, I don't know if you realize I'm listening <laughs> to that being like, that is, like to create a social experiment at 12 to be like, I'm going to test what works. And I wasn't doing that. I didn't do that till a lot later. To I, s- I had a lot of time to think. I, I really was a, a bit of a loner. But yeah. I, I, I did see your grade 10 student card once. Yeah. Um, mm, it was yeah. a little different look. Yeah. Uh, pixie haircut, bright red hair. Um, my best friend went to a different school also when I went to high school and she was like really badass. So she had a pick. We were both obsessed with Winona Ryder. So it was like dark lipstick really, really short haircut. I think I wore raver clothes, but I didn't know what a rave was. I'd like never go to one, but I just, I, I definitely experimented with my look. I also blame that on my parents. They both instilled me. I don't know if it's instilled, but they have no sense of shame. <laughs> and so my sister and I both just kind of live the world with like, we don't have that chip. So, um, we just would wear, I'd wear the craziest outfits. And, um, my joke is when we moved to Canada at six, my parents are like, not only are we moving to another country and you're going to have like a funny accent, but we're going to make sure that we give you the weirdest mullet ever right before we move there. So my parents definitely taught me from an early age, like we're going to do, we're going to make you look really weird and then just see how people react. It don't have no chip, no shame chip. Mm-hmm. What role does shame play in leadership? Oh man. Um, well, I think um, shame, how do I say this? I think so much of leadership involves in my experience, vulnerability, and the fact that everyone's watching you and watching your decisions and they are very much, if, if you're in the spotlight as the leader, I mean, if you make a mistake, that's on you and everyone's going to see that. And so I think that shame um, and embarrassment can definitely guide you from not taking certain risks, but also hiding mistakes from your team or overcompensating all those messy things. If you could sit down across from pixie haired Alana <laughs> and you say, look, Here's a question. I want to make sure you answer this every day by the end of the every sun, by sundown every day. Make sure you got an answer to this question. What question do you give her? So I think I like 15 year old pixie haired me was definitely trying to figure out a lot of things. Um, I think I focused actually a lot on school. I worked really, really, really hard. Um, And I think what I would ask her to do is to just try more things that make me uncomfortable. Like, I think the shame thing was one thing, but I like my mom once yelled at me because I didn't go to a school 
party and did homework because I had something due that day. And she was really worried about how hard I was working at school because I, I think I just had this idea that if, if I got that right, everything else would kind of figure itself out. And so I think I would have definitely pushed her to like go out more um, and, and have more fun and maybe be a bit less responsible. I, I ended up doing that. I had a year of, oh, I don't know if I should say this. It wasn't actually a year of sin, but I had like a year where I'm like, you're going to be irresponsible for at least eight months. <laughs> and I forced it between my third and fourth year of university because I knew I, I obeyed the rules. I worked really hard. I felt bad if I disappointed someone and not that I suddenly had to be like this jerk, but I was like, you need to like maybe push yourself out of that. Cause you've made that a comfort zone. Like you need to make yourself a bit more uncomfortable. So yeah, the question I would ask is like, what did you do today that made you scared or uncomfortable? What'd you do that made you scared or uncomfortable? Like you had like kind of, what, what's the word? Is it rumspringer? Oh, rumspringer. Like, yeah. So I, I did grow up in a, in a kosher house. Um, so I ate bacon every day. Oh, I never this, had, this is for the eight months. Yeah. So I ate bacon every day. That was like my first day. And I announced it to my friends. Um, I moved to Montreal, which is a great city for a room springer. <laughs> um, I moved in with um, two girls who were, who were kind of um, like from, from Winnipeg as well. And they were hilarious and amazing. And just the sense of play and just risk taking. Like I, I had such an amazing time. And I, I really understood my humor and my what I wanted in that year because I just stopped being so scared about like breaking rules really. So the, you talked, I want to go back for a second before we move on currency. You talked about how in mm-hmm. school your marks are your currency yeah. and that's what you have to then spend. So you're trying to accumulate as much as yeah. possible. If now what should the currency be? Like if you, uh, whether it's for yourself back on day one right. or if it's I mean, just it, before your, your it sounds like a plug. <laughs> it's so funny. I, I think so every single success that I've had and who I am today is being because of the insanely, insanely wonderful, warm generosity of my community from my family to my friends, to my peers. Um, the relationships that I invested in and the people that I was kind to and that I supported when I, had a bit more free time, like before I like put all this insane amount of responsibility and, and workload on my plate. I I like to think that I I really value my my friendships and I try my best to be a good friend. I, I definitely don't feel like I'm there right now because so much of my time and effort is put towards my business. But um, before moving here and starting that, like I I invested a lot in those relationships and I I try very. All right, I, I, I like to think that I try really hard. I was saying, I'm like, I'm a really good friend. <laughs> and then like you bring my friends on and it's, yeah, it's one of those. But no, I, I do think that like the, I mean, when I was starting 21 Toys, I moved to Toronto because my best friend, one of my best friends said, look, just move to Toronto, sleep on my couch and you can just sleep on my couch for six months. Don't worry about it. And I'll be there for you. And you know, when things have been really hard, I've had, you know, my family or my sister or friends be like, hey, I'll cover rent for this month like don't worry about it or yeah sure you can use my lab to like my other best friend let me use his lab to sand all my prototypes like the amount of support and generosity I've had from people is I think because of the communities so many of the communities that I've I've been a part of do you feel like the work you're putting into this company is keeping you from being 
in some ways the person you want to be? Because I know how much it can consume you to yeah, run a company. It just it sounded there like you're just like like friends are so important. But I recognize that right now maybe I'm not. Do you feel yeah. as if the values that you use to drive you as a businesswoman are different than the values that drive you as a person and that being a businesswoman and an entrepreneur is getting in the way of the... I, I don't think it affects my values. I don't think it affects my time. So mm-hmm. a lot of the time people say like, oh, you're starting a business. You really need to learn like time management. I was like, no, it's guilt management. <laughs> it's all for me. It's all guilt management. Like I, I think when I'm, when I started the, a business, it's hard to explain because so many businesses have so many different shapes and sizes. But my personal experience is that I am, I am still self-financing a business that is physically mass producing products that are being sold internationally into institutions like schools and also now organizations. So I, you know, our first year we existed off of pre-orders. So that means people who saw my TEDx talk on Twitter, like a school board saw it on Twitter and said, sure, we're going to order it. And I said, cool, can you pay me up front in full and wait six months? And then we won the Youth Social Innovation Capital Fund, which was a $10,000 loan. And we won the Spin Master Innovation Fund, which is a $50,000 loan with two years of mentorship, which we've exceeded that mentorship already. <laughs> fully taken so much we've gotten so much support from from spin master and, and, and futurepreneur and all these other organizations like the center for social innovation like i'm because the realities of the situation is that in the first three years i like to compare my company the way that i've been explaining is it's kind of like having like something in like critical condition like you can't leave it alone for 10 hours without it possibly falling apart and when you're building something you need to spend and grow like you need to kind of do everything all at once and there's a lot of risk and there's very little buffer and we're now at a place in the business where I can actually breathe a little bit um the Shia Radical Generosity Fund came at the perfect time where we're really starting to exist from from sales and we have won 16 awards to date. A lot of an, a number of them are uh, award loans. A lot of them are in kind. So we've gotten anything from um, free um, marketing research from like Deloitte. Um, we got a year worth of free rent at the Center for Social Innovation because of the Agents of Change program. Um, but at the end of the day, like we are not there. There isn't like a Daddy Warbucks <laughs> behind the business, and so all of that means that I work till midnight two in the morning I've just recently started you know taking one day off on the weekends and I know that's not a good work-life balance but I mean the amount of effort needed to get something off the ground I like to compare it to like now it's like at the toddler age where like I can leave it alone with somebody else for the weekend like I have an amazing team so I can leave for a few days um soon I'll be able to walk on its own and eventually it'll be paying paying for my uh you know retirement home it's not time management it's guilt management oh yeah yeah what guilt are you managing well, my own personal guilt and sometimes guilt put on me, but you know, you're starting, I'm starting a business. My parents live in two different countries. Neither of them live in Toronto. Um, I have a lot of friendships that I value, but I can't make it to your bachelorette party or I can't go on that trip with you or, um, I'd love to hang out this weekend, but I, I can't, um, we haven't caught up in a while. What's going on in your life? Um, to the, like in the first year, I couldn't have a conversation with somebody. Like my eyes would glaze over because I'm thinking about like 20 different things that are on fire. Um, and that's not a place I want to be, but I understand. And I think I get this from the fact that my family is, we're all immigrants. Like my, my grandfather is, and my, my grandfather's from Romania. My grandmother's from France. They both escaped the war and ended up in Winnipeg and they just retired this year. And my grandfather's 90. 
Um, and he didn't necessarily want to retire. He's just like, I guess I'm 90, so I have to retire. But they started a, a business. They do, you know, furniture. They, they do, it's called Arnold Polstering. And um, they work really hard. I think I've just, I've, I understand the work part of it. So what are, well. obviously this is called, like means constantly evaluating all kinds of things and making decisions. And I've always said that your values are your criteria for decision making. So as we, before we close off, what are the values that, that act as your decision-making criteria? Decision-making. Um, so what are, the, what are the values that you would say if someone said, look, what are the things that drive this woman above all others? Because it's a big part <laughs> of what we do on the website is what are the core values that, that you use to make these, these calls about you have to prioritize? Mm-hmm. What, what would you say are the, are the core values that drive you on a daily basis? Well, I think like my personal core values and the things that I'd like to think people would think of my values. I, I do think humor above all. Like I think, uh, <laughs> I like, show, like my people use humor. <laughs> like it's, it's how we deal with pain and survival. Um, <laughs> but I do, I, I think humor is so interesting and I don't nearly understand it enough, <laughs> but I think it's humor is creativity, play, connection. It's like connection on a human level, I think humor is so important. I think it helps with difficult conversations. I think it helps with stress management. Um, I think it's really important in like taking what someone told you and then mixing it up and twisting it up into a pretzel and throwing it back at them. Um, I love, love, love humor. Um, I think the other one, definitely community. Like I, I grew up on like a socialist commune <laughs> for my first six years. Um, and I, I think it really put the value of not just doing something on your own, but understanding that like just for a fulfilling life, you need, I need that at least. Like I'm, I've also been like, I, I live with a lot of people. I mean, I, when I first started 21 toys, when, when I first start quit my job and decided to start a toy company, I moved in with circus performers and I lived with like six circus performers and it was amazing. And like, that was an amazing community. And I talk about it all the time. Like any opportunity to talk about the fact that I live with circus performers, I will put it into a conversation. And then I lived with entrepreneurs when I moved to Toronto and it's, so fulfilling and exciting and they're the ones who are there at midnight when I'm coming home and I'm like oh my god can you believe my day so that's what like that's a core value but that's because I fully fully use it and need it um and I do think the last one is just kindness like I talked to another uh entrepreneur actually she's one of my like design idols and we were joking that we've both given talks at like alumni whatever at a like I went to my alma mater, I went back to Carlton and it was alumni night and like my, I had like 10 tips to start a business. And my last one was just like, don't be a jerk. <laughs> and that was it. It was just like, yeah, just don't be a jerk. Like it's, you gotta be really, really, really talented to be a jerk. Cause you're going to have a really hard time, not just working with other people, but having people recommend you to other people. And also like, it's harder to maybe not be a jerk sometimes, but just like, don't be a jerk. Yeah. It's odd. You say, Earlier on, I asked you, you know, when you need to know, nobody knows anything. And yet you go back with your 10 <laughs> tips, right? Yeah. Like it's odd. We're oh, like, yeah. These are my 10 tips. Uh, they might be totally useless. <laughs> I think Seth, I once saw Seth Godin be like, uh, never trust anyone who gives, like, here's my list of tips. Tip yeah. one, never trust anyone who gives you a list of tips. <laughs> so let's close off with, with a couple of questions for you that talks about, goes back to your concept that nobody knows anything. People are listening. And let's say that... Uh, they're about to become like, maybe they're about to take on a leadership role. Maybe they want, maybe I should start my own business. And you say, look, nobody knows anything, but here's something you better know. 
what is it that what's one question that people better know the answer to before they decide that uh, before they take on before they decide if they want to be an entrepreneur let's go from there what's one question they better know the answer to like we know there's an awful lot you know but is there anything they better know before they engage they they take off on this voyage well hmm I'm going to break your rule. <laughs> I do think like, I mean, I do think the one question, at least in my mind, is just motivation. So why, why are you doing this? Why are you starting it? But I don't think that's enough. I think why, and then how are you going to support this? And that could be through your community. That could be through investment. That could be whatever, but like, why are you doing this? And how are you going to support not just the business, but yourself? Because anyone that has started a business you could talk to, it is, it is going to take every part of you <laughs> to just get it off the ground but motivate yourself to get out of bed and keep pushing and convincing yourself that it's it's worthwhile so I would give the two just the why and just what supports do you have and there's I call them culture cliches the vice that you hear over and over again so you talked about you better know the answer to this and I guess a cultural cliche is and every time someone tells you this ignore it what piece of advice, what cultural cliche, what little thing that people throw around as if it's wise, would you say, hell's no? <laughs> well, so I, it's hard to, to pick one and definitely there's context there, but I do think, and, and I'm going to talk a little bit just about failure a bit more, but I think I agree in part with this idea of fail fast, like people will say like fail fast, fail often. And I'm like, yeah, in certain contexts, but I think that mentality, it's not about failing fast, it's about failing better. And I think for me, that's the reframing that needs to happen because you can say fail fast to someone who's coding and developing an app. You can't actually say fail fast to a doctor. And I, I think it's about that context. So for me, it's just about failing better. That one's a really, really important uh, one for me. And uh, yeah, I think, I mean, there's so many cliches out there that you just kind of look and you're like oh man there's that's ridiculous <laughs> there's no way that applies to me um but yeah I think I think the one that I've been mulling over so much the last you know this last three months of us just kind of getting the failure to off the finish line is just this idea that fail fast is not necessarily the cliche that works for for everybody it's about yeah failing better I've never asked this question before so forgive me if I trip over it but I've said, okay, you're Alana sitting here now. Imagine you go and talk to a 13-year-old. So let's imagine that uh, you, the version of you now, the next person that walks in this room and sits behind this microphone is you 20 <laughs> years from now. And you ask her, you're like, there's, there's this thing I'm worried about. Um, tell me if it works out okay. What would be the thing that you hope she can look at you and tell you? Like if you, if, if, if you're 20, I've never asked the question before, so I'm trying to word it oh, properly. Geez, okay. So let's say that I walk out of this room and in comes Alana Benary from 20 years from now and sits down. 21 years 21, from now. 21 years from now. <laughs> oh, there you go. 21 years from now. And there's just, there's, if you could ask her one thing, if one pe one thing that turned out okay, like what's the thing that's most heavily on your mind that if you could get from her assurance, it'll be fine. What do you ask her? What's the number one thing you'd like to know from the person 21 years from now? I think the question would be, did you build something that really made a difference, but not just the 
like not just being like, oh, did you use the empathy toy and did it like, and we've have amazing stories about schools that have been transformed. And we were just in Winnipeg with like the mayor of Winnipeg talking about it. But I think what's been so amazing on this journey is that I'm, it's, I'm just not, we're not just mass producing a toy. Like I'm building a team. Like I am like a number of people's boss. Like that was not what I thought about when I started building this and making sure that they're happy and fulfilled and they're, they have the job that they want. And like essentially just creating like an ecosystem of, of happiness is really important to me. Anywhere from the people using our products to the people that are working directly with me and also just the facilitators and the teachers that we're working with. Um, and just wondering that I can build that and it can exist with me, but also it can exist beyond me. Cause I, there are definitely a lot of, um, layers to who I am and, and what I want to try and achieve and, and all those things. So just figuring out how that can exist and I can still just have a really, like, I hope that the 21 years from me person is very proud and, and is, is involved in it, but is also has figured out a way to have a lot of fun and joy in their life. If you could look at her and say, please tell me this one thing didn't happen. What would that one thing be? Like something I don't want to happen. Yeah. If you can be like, look, I don't need to know anything about the future. Just tell me. <laughs> well, can, can I, can, can I, can I change it to the one thing, like the one thing that I really need, like really, really hope that she will have made is, um, I really, really just, my idea of success is having a kitchen that can hold like 20 people with a backyard that then goes to like a 15, maybe 20 person sauna. And that is just, I make dinner for my group of friends every Friday night. Cause I used to do that. And my idea of my success is the, on the company end, but really it's connecting with, with my friends and my community in this like communal <laughs> space where we are like eating and drinking and like schwitzing. <laughs> like it's like, that has always, that to me is my like, okay, we're getting there. Like that's 21 years for me, that person with this like fabulous sauna in their backyard <laughs> and all these friends who are just like, completely full of food and wine. And with that thought, we will wrap up this week's edition of the Day One Leadership Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed my conversation with Alana Ben-Ari of 21 Toys as much as I did. And you know what? I had such a blast talking to Alana. We chatted for a while after the recorder or the official interview was over, I guess. And I asked her, hey, if you weren't doing 21 Toys, what do you think would keep you busy? And if you ever wanted to know what it was like to talk to someone with entrepreneurship in their DNA, I wanted to share with you a little clip of her response when I said, so if it wasn't 21 Toys, what would it be? Here's a little insight. Anyway, other things outside of 21 Toys, I know I, I, I own the URL Guilt and Gold, which is like a side project of million dollar ideas I have, I feel guilty spending any time on. So Guilt and Gold originally was supposed to be a religious jewelry line business I wanted to start, um, but instead it'll be a blog, yeah, for million dollar ideas. Yeah, the schwitzcarlton.com. So it's a, a sauna club for entrepreneurs to kind of like uh, sit down and talk about their days and their feelings and all that and connect and, and sweat it out in a sauna. Um, I've <laughs> I also own 3vitro.com, which is a really weird one. That's about 3D printing in vitro babies. Um, at like three months, six months, and nine months. And so you can actually see a 3D printing of your like what, your, your baby before it's being born, but it will be delivered by a drone dressed as a stork, 3Vitro. I also own stinkyoga.com. Get the body, not the odor. 
I just sometimes when I get really excited, I just have to buy I just buy URLs for ideas I'll deal with later. But yeah, I I mean my cousin, I don't own this URL, so someone else can get it, but synagogues. So those are goggles you wear in synagogue. So it just looks like you're awake, but you're sleeping. And I've got a draft of them somewhere, but I own a lot of a lot of URLs. Yeah. So if you're an entrepreneur out there, you really it's often in your blood and you can't get rid of it. Next week, we stay in the entrepreneurship space with Glenn Kelman, the CEO of the online real estate juggernaut Redfin. Great interview with Glenn. Can't wait to share it with you. Here's a quick sneak preview. You know, people who start companies, people who run companies are by uh, their nature just impossible to please. Like if there was somebody who was more ambitious for Redfin, who, who, um, who was harder to please than I was, she should get the job to run the company. That's next week, Glenn Kelman of Redfin here on the Day One Leadership Podcast. Hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. If you have, please share it. Please subscribe on iTunes. And if you could leave us a review, a five-star review, it really does help. And we could use a few more. So thank you so much for once again, letting us take so much of your time today. My name is Drew Dudley. Today is day one. Every day is day one. I'll see you next week.